Are you ever forgetful? I can tend to be in certain segments of my life. I rarely forget my keys or my phone. Sometimes it's in less important areas. So uh, regular kind of pastor gatherings, we talk about all sorts of odd things, as you might imagine. But one of the things we often talk about are, you know, what, what are some books of the Bible you've preached through in the last year or two? And often as we're trying to, to anticipate preaching it ourselves, we might ask them, you know, what did you preach? And, and how many sermons did it take, for instance, for you to preach through a book of the Bible? And I find that often in those conversations, guys can, can recall uh, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, they preached this book or that book. And I honestly can, can rarely even remember the book that I was preaching maybe 18 months ago. And I can almost never remember like how many sermons it took to go through the Bible, that particular book of the Bible. Now, in general, that's not a big deal. The only way that would be an issue is if I came to you in six months and said, we're going to start a brand new series in the book of Romans, which we actually did do a year ago. If all of a sudden I try to preach Romans again, please stop me. We just did it. But that's not a really relevant, you know, important, more of a trivial area. Unfortunately, however, I have forgotten my mother's birthday. And I have forgotten my dad's birthday. Fortunately, I've not forgotten my wife's birthday. I've not forgotten our kid's birthday. I've not forgotten our anniversary yet, but so far I've been able to, to hold up in that. But for, for, for forgetfulness in general can be, in a lot of areas, kind of a, just inconvenience. May at times lead to sort of hurt in a relationship. There are some ways that we'll see today where forgetfulness can actually be quite dangerous to our souls. Forgetfulness can undermine our faith. It be a great danger to our hearts. And that's what we'll see this morning in our passage. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Matthew, to Matthew 16. Today will be in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1. And you can find that on page 821 in the Bibles we provided near you. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the passage in front of you as we walk through it today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open them up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 16. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 1, and I'll mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a stack of Bibles, there's a sign by them. Following the service, just grab one of those. You don't have to ask permission. Please just take one of those today as our gift to you. So today we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 
And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Live by faith in Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done, and resisting hardening skepticism. Live by faith in Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done, and resisting hardening skepticism. And in our passage, we'll see really two different outlooks. First, demanding signs from skepticism. And then second, remembering signs from faith. So demanding signs from skepticism, remembering signs from faith. So first, demanding signs from skepticism. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. We see in verse 1 that some Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus Now, both of these groups were parties within the Judaism of that day. The Pharisees viewed themselves as God's separate ones, set apart for holy living. They were devoted, passionate students of God's law. And they gave attention to the tiniest details, though sometimes in attention to the tiniest details, they forgot more important matters. And they sometimes were adding traditions, additional teachings around the law of God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the high priestly party. They rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees valued so highly. They were typically more wealthy, and they were much more willing to cooperate with the occupying Romans. Now, these two groups basically had no use for the other, and so often were in opposition to each other, and yet here we have them coming together as one. This is unique and rare, just as if you think about it in our country, it's it's very rare for us to see true bipartisanship in Washington, D.C. And when we do, it's usually because they're united against some enemy or some challenge out there. And so here, the Pharisees and Sadducees are united in their opposition to Jesus. Now, why do they come to Jesus? We see in verse 1, they came to test him. And what was their test? They asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. So in seeking a sign, they were asking Jesus to provide some authenticating miracle or sign from heaven or in the heavens that would show that Jesus really was who he was claiming to be. So they were apparently asking for not just another miracle, but some even greater sign from the miracles that Jesus had already been doing. Because, of course, they'd already seen Jesus do so many miracles. They'd heard of so many other miracles that he had done. But apparently these were insufficient for them. Jesus, though, first responds in verse 2 by actually not answering their question at all. Look down at verse 2. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. So these statements were just common knowledge in the world of that day. As they try to interpret weather in a world where they didn't have, you know, meteorology to the extent that we do. Now, we don't have quite the the need for sayings today, but there's still some that are not so far off in our culture. You may have heard the saying, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. The same sort of sense of, of sort of interpreting or seeing what's going on 
in the sky. The most popular, I think, weather saying in New England actually came from Mark Twain. And the saying goes like this, if you don't like New England weather, wait for a few minutes. That originated here, apparently, but I've heard it in numerous states around the, the country, and everyone thinks it's their saying. They're like, oh, here, if you don't like, just wait. They're like, that started someplace else, and everybody says it. But look at how Jesus continues, though. Verse 3. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So Jesus is saying, yes, you are able to in a certain way, talk about the weather and anticipate the weather. And yet these devoted, many trained religious leaders were unable to interpret much more important signs, the signs of the times. And Jesus continues, verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So in their minds, what Jesus had done up until now was insufficient proof. But Jesus makes clear that he will not just provide a sign of heaven in order to testify or to satisfy their demands. Again and again, Jesus would do these miracles. He would do these signs, but these signs were never simply to demonstrate power, but they were also done to help and to heal, to comfort and to encourage we never see Jesus in front of skeptics who say, well, let me show you how powerful I am. At the snap of my finger, I'll make it snow. Or if I just speak the word, I'll make a, a downpour. He was not interested in, in simply showing power, but always power used for the good of others. So Jesus would not give a sign in response to their testing question. And yet he says, but I will give you a sign. I won't give you the signs that you're asking for, but there will be one sign that I'll give to you. And he says, it's the sign of Jonah. And what does Jesus mean by this sign of Jonah? Now, the hearers that day were devoted Jews who would have known the Old Testament scriptures well. They would know exactly who the Old Testament prophet Jonah was. God had called Jonah to be a prophet, to go to the people of Nineveh, a horribly godless people, and to call them to repent. But Jonah didn't want to go, so he fled on a ship as God pursued Jonah, this great storm overtook the ship. And in order to, to save the others, Jonah finally tells them, you need to throw me into the sea. And they did. Jonah was thrown into the sea. And then in the sea, he was swallowed by a great fish. And Jonah remained in the fish until on the third day, he was spit out on dry ground. Then Jonah was convinced and he went to Nineveh. And there he preached, calling the people to repent and, and stunningly, People turned back. There's a great repentance in Nineveh. So just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus would be crucified, buried, and on the third day be raised from the dead. So Jesus is saying the presence and the preaching of Jonah was a sign for the people. And in a similar way, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus was a sign for them, for us, and for all the world. So for these who were hardening in their skepticism, there was a sign for them. It would be the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And friends, this is the ultimate sign at the center of Christianity. It is at the center because of what is accomplished through Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary death. 
his triumphant resurrection, conquering Satan, sin, and death. So in order to provide this great salvation as a gift of grace that's available to anyone who would receive it by faith. And this sign of the cross and resurrection of Jesus was necessary because of our own sin. We were all in desperate straits because of our own rebellion. We needed salvation from outside of us, but the sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the sign of salvation for sinners like us. And now, through this gift, salvation, new life, adoption into God's own family, forgiveness, free and full joy and hope in this life and the hope of life eternal are ours. And friends, Christianity rises and falls on whether this sign really happened, whether Jesus really lived, whether he really died on a cross, and whether he was really raised triumphantly. To be clear, friends, Christians do not believe that it's enough for us to simply believe it, but it has to have been so. It's not enough for us to just hope that it happened. Either it happened or it didn't. And Christians believe that this can be examined because we think there was a a real time and a real place that Jesus lived. There's a real time and a real place where he died. A real time and a real place with real witnesses to his resurrection. And so this evidence, we would say, can be considered, should be considered. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of this beautiful summer day to join us. Now, we would love for you to explore, to ask questions about who Jesus is. Jesus was saying to them, there there is a sign. This is the sign for the world. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Unfortunately, most of this group of Pharisees and Sadducees were not really seeking to understand Jesus. They gave the appearance of being curious by asking a question, but, but they had no desire to really come to know Jesus in a saving way. They they were instead hardened skeptics. They they didn't want something to convince them. In fact, they hoped Jesus wouldn't give a sign. So what might appear to an observer as curiosity by their question is really hardened skepticism disguised as curiosity. And it's possible for us, for you, when considering Jesus, to actually have a similar outlook. On the one hand, it's absolutely reasonable and genuine. We encourage this for someone who's not a Christian to say, I have real questions. Or to say, I'm struggling with this piece. Or I'd like to talk more about that. Friends, we commend that. That's good and right thinking. On the other hand, it's possible for a person to act like they're genuinely curious, even to say things, if only I could see this one more thing. If only I could have this one more question answered while appearing curious, in fact, Deep down, they don't want to believe. There's a substantial difference between truly seeking questions and hardened skeptical questions that aren't really seeking truth. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that Jesus welcomes skeptics and that we at this church welcome skeptics as well. So you, if you're a skeptic, you are welcome here. I rarely talk to to people from different church backgrounds, and and so many, at least their experience was growing up, that they were taught in their church that questions weren't to be asked. 
You're basically told, just don't ask questions. Just believe, just trust. Friends, we think questioning is good and wise and godly. So we invite you to bring your questions to Jesus. We, we hope that you'll feel comfortable here exploring who Jesus is. Now, if you're curious and you want to know more, there are a variety of ways you might explore. One of them might just be simply to regularly joining us at times like this as we walk through the Bible together. Maybe in time you want to take a step further. Probably the next step I'd recommend would be to attend one of our community groups, small group Bible studies that meet different times around the week, to, to grow in a smaller group in friendship and to read the Bible together, to pray with one another. In time, you may, may want to talk with someone. We would love to arrange for that if you're open to it. Maybe with one of the elders or just another member who'd be very happy to sit with you and read the Bible with you. And we think that's the, the wisest thing you could do would be for you to sit down and likely with another and read the Bible. Because we say that that's where our faith comes from and what we see and understand in the scriptures today. So we want you to not just take our word for it, but to look at the scriptures for yourself to ask questions, to consider. And so if in time you'd be open to that, we would love to arrange that sort of conversation. Friends, the cross of Jesus and his resurrection has always been hard, challenging to receive. And really easy for a hardened skeptic to write off. And friend, if you're a skeptic, let me just encourage you, before you write off Jesus, before you write off Christianity, let me urge you to, Consider the evidence. Read God's word. Read this very source document of our faith. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees had seen and heard many of the signs of Jesus. So, so what was driving, what was underneath their skepticism is that they, they wanted a sign, but if there was to be a sign, it, it, they wanted a sign that would not threaten them that would not cause them to change their lifestyle. And friends, the same can be true of us. The same might be true of you, that, that we, we want to perhaps see, is Jesus really Savior and King? But we also don't want Jesus to call us to do anything different with our life, to make any choices different from the ones we already want to make. So for them, if Jesus really is the Messiah, it threatened their own beliefs. It, it threatened their influence in Jerusalem. It threatened, threatened so much of their lifestyles. My friend, if Jesus really is the Savior and King, it will impact us as well. For if we reject him, it has eternal ramifications. And if we trust in him by faith, it has daily and eternal ramifications. For Jesus will call us to, to trust in and follow him to say yes to certain things we once said no to and say, say no to certain things we once said yes to. So it calls us to a different way of living. So friend, if you are a skeptic today, you might consider, is today your skepticism honest? If so, we're thankful for that. Is your curiosity real? Or have you already decided, I'm not going to, believe that. 25 years ago, when Brandy and I were considering moving to New England, we'd come here to visit a good friend and a mentor. And, and my mentor, who I'd known for years, said that at times I could be stubborn. I don't know why he said that. I think he was wrong. But, but occasionally he thought that I was stubborn. And so while we were here visiting, we were just uh, going for a drive one day. And, and so he wanted to quiz me. And he said, what's the second largest city in New England? And don't answer out loud. I just want you to think, do you know the second largest city in New England. So I thought, okay, went through in my head. 
And I answered him, I said, it's providence. No, it's not providence. Okay, let me think about it some more. I said, it's got to be Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut. No. No, the second largest city in New England was and is Worcester. Now, I didn't know where Worcester was. I didn't know how to say Worcester correctly at the time. And I certainly didn't know it was the second largest city in New England. And even when he told me that, being stubborn, I still was not convinced. Now, at the time, we didn't have smartphones. We just had flip phones. So it was like, okay, as soon as we got back to, the, to their house, and we, we Googled it and looked it up, and, and there it was, the facts of the size of these cities. And still, deep down, I was trying to find a way in my stubbornness to resist the facts. Friends, that's a skeptical heart that I sometimes struggle with. Friends, I think the skepticism in our society is very much acceptable. And I would say in greater Boston, perhaps it's even admired. It's admirable to be skeptical. Now, some might say that Boston in general is a very skeptical region. I'm not sure why they'd say that, but, but occasionally we do have some questions. So we might say, you know, why is she so happy? Why is he so friendly? Or maybe sometimes we wonder, how do those people on the West Coast get anything done when they're so laid back and enjoying life? Why aren't they more, you know, wound tight like we are? We are a little bit more skeptical in Boston than we might be prone to admit. So friend, if you're skeptical today, I wonder, are you willing, if the evidence led you down that path, to be persuaded? Are you open to be persuaded? I would encourage you to pray that, that God would give you an open heart even as you explore. We see a daunting note at the end of verse 4. Look down at verse 4. It says, so he left them and departed. Now, this certainly refers to the fact that Jesus was leaving that geographic region, but Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was also signaling a turn in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had again and again been preaching the news of his kingdom. He had been healing, but now we're seeing a turn in the narrative. We see the dangerous temptation of demanding signs from skepticism. But the good news is there is another way, and that is living from faith. And so we see second, remembering signs from faith. Remembering signs from faith in verses five through the end. So Jesus and his disciples travel across the Sea of Galilee. They get to the other side and apparently they had forgotten to bring along any bread. So Jesus seeks to teach his disciples. Verse six, he says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in light of their previous encounter, Jesus wants to sound a warning for them, but the disciples entirely miss the point. They start discussing among themselves the fact that they didn't bring any bread. And in my own imagination, I see these disciples, you know, saying, well, I thought you had the bread. I thought you had the bread. Well, maybe he ate all the bread. Like, why is there no bread? So they're going around and around about bread. Jesus says, verse 8, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? He goes on to say, you, you don't, don't you perceive, don't you understand, and don't you remember? Jesus had fed 4,000 right in front of them with much left over. And his point is, if you saw that, if you recently saw me feed thousands with so much left over, why would you be worried that you forgot the bread? Getting more bread would not be a challenge for Jesus. 
Then in verse 12, we see, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, Jesus describes their teaching like leaven, which is something small but powerful that grows and spreads. So Jesus is cautioning against this teaching. It's small, but it spreads and it's influential. And so what is this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that is to be avoided? It's what we see in this attitude. They refuse to truly believe unless Jesus would do something in exactly the way that they desired an attitude towards Jesus that rejected his claim and the evidence pointed him to be God the Son, instead seeking to control Jesus and demand of him. The, the teaching to be avoided is the practice of the Pharisees and Sadducees of a hardening skepticism that demands signs of their own liking from Jesus. Now, perhaps you notice in verse 8 what Jesus called his disciples. He calls them, O you of little faith. He called them little faith as a, as a jab of these devoted, closest followers of him who'd seen so much of his ministry, had heard so much of his teaching, and yet they failed to have this faith that they should. And friends, there's a tremendous contrast from what we saw last week. If you were with us last week, you saw this you know, compelling story of this Canaanite mother who came to Jesus in desperation and commended to, to, to read the text. But, but after the encounter, Jesus commends, compliments her faith. He says of this Canaanite mother, great is your faith. And in contrast are his disciples. Oh, you of little faith. Jesus asked the disciples, don't you understand? Don't you remember? So the, the positive call for them and us then is to seek to understand and to cultivate remembering. So how are we on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Seek to understand, cultivate remembering. So friends, we want to seek to understand. Let's pray that we would understand and grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ, the Savior and King, and what is held out to us about him in the Scriptures. So if we want to seek to understand, what do we do? One way we, we do that by just steadily taking in God's word. So I would just commend to you the, the, the rhythm of life of just thinking through like, what if I just more days than not, I carved out a few minutes, I read a paragraph or two of the scriptures, and then tomorrow I open it back up and I just followed that. So that across the months and the years, I would grow in understanding. One part of that would be hearing God's word preached. So times like this, week in and week out. Just these normal means that God gives, we have the chance to grow and understand it. As I mentioned earlier, these small groups we have called community groups are a, a helpful part of this, to have others with us, to ask questions and to seek to understand. Maybe in time that you do have some questions as you seek to understand. And as you do, the book table that I was uh, going to mention uh, is right there with a number of books on a variety of topics. And I would commend those books to you. There's not some big bookstore in New England that you can get to. And so books on a number of topics, and we have others that we kind of rotate through. And maybe there's a topic that isn't addressed on the book table. We would encourage you to ask. Staff, elders, other members would commend a helpful book to you to read on a topic. Or in time, you may want to sit and talk with someone about the questions that you have as you seek to understand. Friend, we'd love to do that. Arrange for that with, to talk with another member, 
to talk to a staff member or an elder as well. But friends, as we seek to understand, we want to be mindful that this growth and understanding almost always happens slowly. We want all things in life quickly. But this change happens slowly. So one, be patient with yourself. Be patient with the process of growing and understanding. And we should be patient with one another. Others in our life, why don't they understand like we do? We can show them grace, patience as they seek to understand. But was it hopeless for those Pharisees and Sadducees that came that day? I mean, could none of them actually come to understand? Well, in fact, some of them did come to know Jesus. One of them, a man by the name of Nicodemus. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night had these questions, really an interesting, interesting conversation they have back and forth, but, but Nicodemus leaves still not understanding. We come across Nicodemus again, though, at the end of the Gospel of John, John 19. After Jesus dies on the cross, Nicodemus was there helping care for Jesus' dead body at great risk to himself. There's no way he would be doing that if he hadn't come to see Jesus as Savior and King. The Apostle Paul plays a key role in life of the church, was one of the most devoted, passionate, energetic opponents of Jesus as a Pharisee. Paul too, transformed by the gospel, came to understand. So friends, that's, it's good news. So therefore, we should never give up on the skeptics in our lives. I'm gonna pray and keep praying and show great patience with them. So we wanna seek to understand, but we also want to cultivate remembering cultivate remembering. Jesus asked them if they remembered what he had just done. Don't you remember? I just multiplied the bread. My friends, across the Old Testament and New, God's people are called to be a remembering people. In the Old Testament, we see regularly when God does some great miraculous act that God might say to the people, take some stones pile them up right here and call this place by that name. And every time you come back by, remember what I did there. Remember God's powerful act of deliverance. And God gave to his people regular festivals, yearly reminders, the high point being the celebration of the Passover. Why? What were they celebrating in the Passover? God's great salvation out of slavery in Egypt. God had rescued them, brought them out. So every year they would celebrate Passover. Why? To remember what God had done. And friends, this remembering does not end for Christians in the New Testament. We also are called to cultivate a remembering because we're all prone to forget. So we want to remember what God says in his word. We want to remember what Christ has done in history in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. So among other things, the church, the local church, is to be a remembering community. So every Sunday, when we gather together, in some ways there's a, a redundancy to what we're doing that's intentional. For every Sunday when we gather, we remember again the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the, the hope that is ours. So, so in a sense, the story is always the same again and again because of the busyness of life, the stresses of life, we're prone to forget. So that's the normal means that God has given this regular gathering with God's people. And then what God has given to us, baptism. 
And baptism as a, as a new believer is taken under the water and brought back up. It's a picture of death and resurrection. So baptism reminds us of Christ's death and resurrection, but should also remind us of our own baptism. For when you see someone else be baptized, celebrate with them and think about your own. So I remember when I was baptized a year ago or 55 years ago, whenever it was for you, remember your baptism. The church is also a remembering community when we receive the Lord's Supper together, which we'll do in just a few moments today. Here again, a means of remembering. Here's how the Apostle Paul writes of the Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, when we do this together, what do we do? We remember Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood shed for us again and again, remembering and remembering and proclaiming it to one another as we wait for Christ's promised return. So that's why it's so essential as a Christian to just be embedded in this remembering community. In the normal means of week in and week out, drawn away from so much that grabs our attention, that overwhelms us to remember what Christ has done. We remember what Christ has done in history, but we also want to remember what God has done in our own lives, in saving you by his grace, sustaining you by his mercy over the years. And remember that your heavenly father never forgets his promises and he never forgets his people. We're forgetful, he is not. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you. He does forget only when he chooses to forget. And what does he forget? Our sins. Our sins are forgiven, removed from us as far as the east as from the west. That's how far our sins are taken. Friend, remember that. And this remembering of what God has done in our lives in the past is not living in the past like old high school friends might live in the past. A few years ago, we were visiting uh, my best friend from high school. And so our kids were there, his kids were there. We were around the dinner table. We were just having a great time. And we decided it was time to, to regale our children with our sports exploits from high school. So we began to tell various stories. They rolled their eyes and could not care less. But we continued telling our stories, which honestly, perhaps on reflection, began to be exaggerated a bit over the years. For as the decades have gone by, we we remember ourselves being better than we really were. Our memories have become exaggerated. But friends, that's not typically the case when it comes to how we remember God's faithfulness to us. We rarely exaggerate God's faithfulness. Instead, we're tempted to shrink what God has done, to narrow what God has done to doubt what God has done for us. So friend, be careful in our forgetting to remember we miss this opportunity to 
bring back to its real size what God has done in your life. We need this remembering community. Friends, you remember how God has worked in your life. But if you're a Christian, how God put people in your life who shared the good news with you. Do you remember how you came to saving faith? Do you you remember, friend, your your baptism? Do you remember that dark valley you went through and, and God was faithful to you through it? Have you started to forget Many Christians across the generations have found it helpful even to to write down some of those moments. In some means, journaling our lives. You don't have to do it every day. You might even just do it seasonally or maybe just doing it for the last 10 years, but but writing down some of those moments so that you can remember. This week, uh, I was meeting one morning with guys in the discipleship group with me, and as we were talking about Ephesians, I was reminded of a key moment in my life in college I had been a Christian from a very young age, but very, very immature. I knew that we were saved by grace, but honestly didn't know much more than that. I remember at this college student conference, hearing this guy preach about how we are saved by grace, but also how we are to live by grace. And I'm sure I had heard that before, but it sounded, felt like I was hearing it for the very first time. And it was earth-shaking to think about how that grace impacts daily living. And in my mind, I can still envision that, you know, rusty folding chair I was sitting in. And the room that I was in is it felt like for a few minutes, I was the only one there wrestling with, wow, what does it look like to live by grace, to know the grace of God day in and day out. And that remembering this week, something that I rarely think of, something I'd long ago forgotten, was good for my soul. My friends, this is one of the many reasons that all Christians need roots, we need membership in a local church to help one another remember, to help one another understand. So friend, when you're in a moment of struggle to have another who knows you from the church who says, you know, I remember when you first started coming here, you weren't a Christian and you had so many questions that you asked. And I remember that Sunday when we celebrated your baptism and we, we all applauded and what a beautiful day that was. And I remember that season of real difficulty you went through four years ago. I remember how you talked of how God had been faithful in it with mercy and grace for you. And we need people like that to help us remember. But friends, also other people need you to do that for them. So we need people to help us remember, but also a part of the church as we get to help others remember as well. And as we're growing in understanding and remembering, we're resisting this hardening skepticism that can so easily arise. So Christian, if you're in Christ today, if you come to trust in Christ, God has saved you by his grace. God has been faithful to you in the past. He has sustained you through some valleys and through some mountaintops, and he will keep you to the end. He is faithful. He will finish what he has started. He will never forsake you. No matter how dark the valley will be, even the darkness of death, he is with you. Remember that. So friends, let's seek to live by faith in Jesus Christ. 
remembering what he has done and resisting hardening skepticism. 